Welcome to What Makes Us Human, a podcast series from Cornell University's College of Arts and Sciences. While we might think we know what it means to be human, researchers across fields are finding surprising new insights all the time. In this series, we bring you Cornell's leading researchers to showcase the newest findings about what it means to be human in the 21st century. My name is Laura Spitz, and I'm the Vice Provost for International Affairs at Cornell University and an Associate Dean at Cornell Law School. The law plays a role in the social construction of what it means to be human. The stakes are high, especially for those like the indigenous peoples of North America, whose bodies and cultures have been both humanized and dehumanized through law. I am not myself indigenous. My British and Ukrainian ancestors came to Canada at the turn of the last century. I grew up in the lower mainland of British Columbia on traditional Stolo territory, traveling frequently to the Gulf Islands, Songhees territory, where my maternal grandparents lived. But one of my brothers is indigenous, adopted by my parents in 1971. His adoption puts my family in the middle of a complicated story of loss, not only from his perspective, but from the perspective of his birth parents, his peoples, and broader indigenous communities. It is this fact more than any other that motivated me to learn about Aboriginal histories and cultures and now to consider how they interact with the law and our understandings of humanity. In law, we extend human-like rights or protections to non-human beings by humanizing them, by giving them attributes associated with humanness, such as volition, vitality, morality, spirituality, social connectedness. In New Zealand, both a national park and a large river have been recognized as persons under the law as part of recent treaty settlements. They are now entitled to a range of human rights. In the United States, courts have protected the religious freedoms of for-profit corporations on the basis of their status as persons. Conversely, humans can be made unhuman through law by emphasizing their non-human or not-yet-human qualities, those commonly associated with things, objects, or children. More, the same humans can be dehumanized for some purposes and humanized for others. Each slave in the antebellum United States, for example, was counted as three-fifths of a person for the census, but as a non-person when it came to voting or getting married or owning property. Once a group of beings has been rendered unhuman or less than human, a stereotypical label commonly associated with them, such as savages in the case of First Peoples, may be used to dehumanize others by using that label. I have been researching the mid-19th century on what became known as Vancouver Island, where the meaning of humanness evolved alongside the emergence of a set of legally relevant and contested categories. These included person, corporation, Indian, alien, British, citizen, and white. I look particularly at the period of colonization efforts led by Governor James Douglas who, unlike many government officials who followed him, viewed and for the most part treated indigenous people as human or at least potentially human. Because of this, Douglas is sometimes valorized for having recognized aboriginal title in unceded land. But his underlying assumption that aboriginal people were in fact people was not especially progressive, except in contrast to the discriminatory views of others. Douglas's view was fundamentally liberal in the sense that it recognized indigenous people could be legal persons capable of holding and exercising rights in property. This was a rather thin or formalistic understanding of humanity. Human was a status which entitled a subject to membership in humanity or humankind. I think about this in contrast with what the original inhabitants of this territory, the Coast Salish nations, most likely believed about the meaning and relevance of being human. The rich linguistic and cultural diversity among First Nations makes generalizations risky. 
but we know that the Coast Salish lived in a world where there was no firm divide between the natural world and the spirit world. In their communities, being human was not so much a status to which legal rights and responsibilities attached, but a largely relational way of being in the world, and even then potentially transitional or temporary and invariably subordinate to more powerful non-human forces. In that context, the Coast Salish would likely have viewed humanity not so much as a community to which someone might belong or become a member, although it was that too, but something one expressed towards others, both human and non-human. In this view, the practice of humanizing or dehumanizing revealed as much, if not more, about one's own humanity as anyone else's. Join us for another edition of What Makes Us Human, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. For more essays and podcasts, visit us online at as.cornell.edu forward slash humanities.